Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. So on the agenda, a slightly hawkish Fed and ECB discussing the end of QE and the President of the United States considering slapping on tariffs on China just as signs of weakness emerge in the world's second largest economy. Bob Sinch joins us now, Amherst Pierpont Securities, global strategist. Um, Bob, what's there to worry about? Just walk me through it. Well, I think the um, um, you know I think the trade issue is going to be the one to to focus on over the say the next six to nine months. Uh, you know the administration has done a lot to stimulate this economy. Uh, my colleague Steve Stanley thinks we we have the potential for a five handle on GDP in the second quarter. We'll see wow. how some of the uh, trade numbers and the like turn and inventory numbers turn out over the next uh, the next couple of weeks. Uh, but a, but certainly a very robust first half of the year. Um, you know, the question is, uh, do we do some self-inflicted damage uh, through the trade side? It just seems it might be damage for, for other people and not the United States. I lost count of the amount of times that Chair Powell referred to strength and a strong economy here in the United States, Bob. Yeah, and I think, uh, again, the momentum is good and the, and the Fed is looking at what is rather than what could be. Uh, the markets, I think, focus on what could be. And, uh, you know, I, I think this is where the trade side comes into play because we've done a lot in, in terms of the de- deregulation side for the U.S. corporate sector. The weaker dollar last year, I think, is playing a role in the strength of the U.S. economy this year, operating with a normal lag of, say, six to 12 months. Um, so I think all cylinders are moving forward um, on the U.S. side right now. The question is, do we interrupt that sentiment? You know, you look at, at, at business sentiment, it's extremely strong. Uh, capital spending is picking up. One way to interfere with that is to create uncertainty, and, and certainly the trade side is where I think we're creating uncertainty. Do you see that creeping through in the soft data at the moment? In terms of the survey data, the NFIB Small Business Confidence Survey was stellar. What's happening elsewhere, Bob? A small business is stellar because small business is domestic. It's true. And I think you look at the domestic environment, and it is extremely strong. Domestic demand is strong. Uh, wage and salary incomes uh, continue to grow pretty health in a healthy fashion, so that's uh, supporting d- uh, consumer demand. Um, I think it's the international, it's the global environment where if you get into the larger businesses, there's bigger uncertainty. So not surprising in a domestic-oriented economy that these small businesses are uh, showing that, that conditions are very robust. The Federal Reserve determined to deliver perhaps a couple more hikes this year, maybe three through 2019. Two's tens on the Treasury curve. We always talk about this difference. What does the curve look like? Is it flat? Is it steep? Right now it's flattening. We're south of 40 basis points. And at the moment, the difference between a two-year note yield here in the United States and a 10-year bond yield is 38 basis points, just below 39 basis points. What's the signal you take from that? Well, I don't take as much as I used to because I think that there are a number of things affecting the longer end of the yield curves around the world. One is central bank accumulation of assets. That's unprecedented. Uh, second is the demographic factors, where uh, a lot of uh, a lot of us who are uh, who are getting older are investing at the longer end of the yield curve in fixed income. Um, and I think the third is some pension changes that have created a, a strong corporate demand for money coming home uh, from overseas and and uh, lining up with their long term liabilities. And so I think a lot of things are depressing longer term yields at a time when short term yields are beginning to normalize. So. You know, if you look at the shape of the yield curve, it's been flattening for a year. 
And based on historic relationships, that should be slowing the economy already. And if anything, the economy is going in the other direction. It's strengthening. So I don't take as much of an economic signal from the yield curve now as I would have mm. 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 30 years ago. What is the What are the ramifications of 7% nominal GDP? Well, I haven't asked that question in a long time. Yeah, and I think that you know we we could get near that number on an annualized basis in the second quarter. What does it mean? It means very robust conditions for domestic uh, for domestic producers, and and I think that's the small business index that uh, that Jonathan just referred to. Domestic companies, uh, ones that are dealing specifically with a domestic uh, environment and the domestic consumer, see very robust conditions, very strong sales conditions. What's their biggest problem? They can't find workers. Okay, and that's a good thing. We all agree with that. But we're also told in our textbooks that there's some outcomes here that are harmful. What Does it set us towards financial instability down the road? I mean, obviously it's good. I get that. But there's got, there's, there's got to be some angst about it. You know, we used to say that the best part of the cycle for asset prices was right at the beginning of the recovery. Why? Because central banks were still very accommodative, uh, and at the same time, the economy was not absorbing a lot of capital. Um, we're in a different part of the cycle now. Uh, the economy is starting to absorb capital through through mm -hmm. uh, business borrowing, consumer borrowing. Uh, the central banks are becoming less accommodative. And what does that give us? It gives us markets that tend to be a little bit more volatile uh, and returns that are a little less robust. And so, you know, we've talked about this before. You know, I call this uh, <clears throat> a bit of a Shakespearean market this year, full of sound and fury signifying uh, nothing. Uh, returns year to date have, have not been very robust at all, either in bonds or stocks. We've had a lot more volatility, but the net returns really aren't very good. And so I think we're going to go through a year where we get to the end of the year and we sort of say, okay, so returns were pretty lackluster. Not surprising given that the economy is absorbing more liquidity and the central banks are supplying yeah. less of it. Bob, before we lose you, we've got to get your view on the ECB. Um, oh, Mario Draghi the world and the news conference. Um, we can do that a little bit later, Tom. I imagine at 7.30 <clears> Eastern, you're going to have a lovely video for me to listen to. And I, and I can't wait. Something to do with the Simpsons and, and football. Is yeah, that lined up. Yeah, people are loving it. I'm sure they way are. lined up. I'm sure they are. Can we just get Bob's view on the ECB before we go, Bob? The European Central Bank, the news conference in an hour and about 23 minutes time. The uh, decision in about 40 minutes time. What are you looking for? You know, I think they've tipped their hand. Um, I, I think they, like many other central banks, want to start normalizing. And the first step in that process is to, to stop digging a bigger hole in terms of accumulating assets. So uh, the program ends uh, right now. The current program is scheduled to end September 30. Remember, this is not a, a cliff we're jumping off. We went from an $80 billion per month accumulation rate. I think it went to $60 billion a month in April of 2017, went down to $30 billion a month in January of 2018. Um, you know, the time for this program is yeah. over, and my guess is they just let it expire at the end of September, and they probably yeah. tell us that today. Bob Sims, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it. been curve flattening certainly dynamics in the market real spikes uh, off the announcement and then around tripper pretty much 
over an hour on the Powell press conference yesterday. Jane Foley at Robble Bank enjoyed watching the round trip. We moved. We moved again. Are we going to get the same action, Jane, this morning from Mr. Draghi where there'll be a statement and then we'll get to the press conference and they'll say, no, everything's fine. Well, to be honest, it looks like uh, Draghi has uh, deliberately put out uh, some warning messages to the market. So we can go back a, a week ago and we can look at the, the comments that we had uh, then from uh, the ECB's parade. And, and he, of course, uh, began to talk about a tightening labor market. He began to prepare the market possibly for the, the, the announcement that we've had on quantitative mm-hmm. easing today. So therefore, we didn't have the shock that we would have if he hadn't spoken a week ago. So we've had the news now on, on quantitative easing. We know it's going to come to an end. Not a huge surprise. We many people have been saying for a long time that just for supply reasons alone they may have to end quantitative easing at the end of this year but I think what they've done and what Draghi's been very careful to do is offset any sort of hawkish implication from that message with that news on interest rates. Interest rates low for a very long time still. But on a degrees of freedom basis the single headline John Farrow at 745 ECB to keep rates unchanged until at least summer yeah. of 2019. Jane, I mean, do you have to show up for work until like August of next year? <laughs> well, indeed, it's very, very stringent in its guidance. I mean, you know, if, if you look at many ECB watchers, certainly uh, my, my colleagues here uh, watching the ECB are suggesting and have been for a while that perhaps we won't get that first interest rate hike till September 2019. So I don't think this is an enormous surprise, but it does lay it on the line. By then, uh, the Federal Reserve will have hiked interest rates several more times. And, and yet the ECB, with interest rates unchanged towards, well, for another year, uh, the interest rate differential certainly weigh in favour of the US dollar. So for our listeners just tuning in, let's go through the decision. Um, rates remain unchanged. The QE plan was set to go through September at $30 billion a month. They'll wind that down to $15 billion a month through the end of December. Then QE will finish. And then the guidance after that is rates do not rise until at least the summer. The interesting thing about this, Jane, is that the president of the ECB, Mario Draghi, steps down at the back end of next year. And I just wonder whether that guidance stays that way when we get a conversation about who the next president of the ECB will be. They can contain the guidance around Draghi's tenure. They can say rates won't rise until the summer. But after that, if we get an announcement of a hawkish ECB president, the forward guidance is kind of out of his hands, isn't it? Well, you, you're right. And, and indeed, actually, you know, a year can be a long time in an economy. And, and the same thing could happen if we get uh, significantly weaker or significantly stronger economic data. So this guidance is, is, is very strong, and it, but it does potentially put the ECB in, in a corner in a year's time. So certainly, uh, dependent on the speculation as to who that, who that ECB, um, uh, who will take over the reins a, a year, or it dependent on that data, uh, we could look back at this and, and say, actually, that was inappropriate. Jane, I'm just suggesting in a zillion years at Bloomberg that this is sort of an historic moment. I've never seen that headline before where a given central bank says we're, we, we're just unched for a year. I mean, what are the ramifications yeah. of any central bank saying we're going to check out for 12 months? I think it could be, you know, as I say, uh, potentially um, difficult for them. I mean, hopefully not, but it certainly could be. I mean, again, I suppose the closest comparison I can come up with was the Bank of England fairly recently. I mean, certainly they became very hawkish. I gave a very hawkish message earlier this year, and then they had to backtrack on that. And that can be quite difficult. It can be an issue for its credibility. And credibility and trust is is very much uh, important. How can you have credibility? This is important. How can you have credibility and trust if your theory is bankrupt? I mean, they're basically saying we're boxed in, you know, balance sheet and the rest of it that we all know. 
And so we're telling you in advance we're doing nothing for 12 months. Yeah, that, that, it, it, That's indeed. not theoretical. It is. I mean, it, it's, it's one thing for economists to, to look at CPI forecasts and, and make GDP forecasts and come to that conclusion. That's, that's, that's what forecasters do. That's what they're paid to do. But it is different to get a central bank to actually make quite exactly. firmly that guidance. So, you know, that can put, uh, that, that can actually read uh, or misdirect uh, the, the market. So that is probably right. going to be something which is going to get some, some criticism, I would imagine, over the next uh, few exactly. months. Exactly. I mean, John, I think this is extraordinary. I wish yeah. Alan Blinder was here right now. But you've picked up on probably the most important point the guidance we've moved past the asset purchase program the focus is on rates and jane because it's such a dovish forward guidance around the rate story does that explain why euro dollar just drops sub 118 again and you don't see a stronger euro Yes, it does. And, that, and I think this is all very deliberate from the ECB. I think they got the message out on, on quantitative easing last week so that that wouldn't provide a hawkish signal. And that the message on rates was perhaps deliberately there to offset any, any um, hawkish takeaway from this. So the message on rates is, is the one which the market is digesting now. And it comes, of course, right on the heels of that uh, Fed announcement last night, which was very clear. You know, they will be hiking well, quite a lot between them. Let's assume you're correct, and there is data between now and quote-unquote summer of 2019. That was a great movie. Um, Jane, if you look at what will change their certitude of unchanged for 12 months, which I, I still folks can't get used to, is it just a simple GDP analysis, which upsets the uh, apple cart? Well, probably more like on the inflation front. And then I suppose, actually, if we look at inflation data in, in the Eurozone over the last few years, this does play into their corner. So, for instance, uh, inflation we know has been uh, really quite low and has remained uh, uh, very stubbornly low for quite a long time. So if we project that forward, then we can probably make the conclusion, well, there's no real reason for them to, to, to be hiking interest rates. However, things do change. And what we are likely to see over the next few months is higher CPI. Now, the higher CPI, probably not going to be so much from wage inflation, which is what they would like to see. It's probably going to be on the back of oil price uh, uh, rises. That might start to peter out at the end of uh, this year into, into next year, suggesting actually that they don't really need to hike interest rates because of that, because it's price push inflation, not demand pull. So um, yeah. the, the, the way things are laying right now, well, you know, I think it's reasonable to assume that they probably wouldn't want to hike interest rates in that period. But you're quite right. It, it, is, it is quite exceptional for the, them to make such a forceful uh, forward guidance, particularly in, in, a, in a period of time which isn't in the crisis. That's when forward guidance really came into its own during the crisis years. And many central bankers, many economists would argue that actually when you go into better years of growth, that's when you start reining in on the, on the forward guidance. Jane, here's a question. Can the Federal Reserve continue to go it alone? The Federal Reserve are set to deliver, I don't know, at least 100 basis points of hikes before the ECB even pulls the trigger. And then still, the depot rate in Europe will be negative, what, 30 basis points, maybe 20? It'll still be negative. I imagine they won't remove a full 40 basis points in the first rate hike. How much further can the Fed go alone? Well, you know, I think that's an interesting question, and I think the answer probably will be provided by perhaps the dollar. Um, and, and, and the reason I say that is because, obviously, interest rate differentials, if they do carry on feeding uh, uh, dollar strength, well, that's a monetary tightening in its own right, and that's going to be something which could slow uh, down the growth rates of, of the U.S. economy. So if the dollar just rises moderately, well, they can probably carry on, on going. If not, they won't. But, I mean, the other question or the other answer, I should say, will be the Phillips curve. I, th- I think many central bankers are assuming that wage inflation will rise. Uh, um, but actually, it's been extremely stubborn as well. Wage, wage inflation in most of the G10 is still very, very low for a variety of different reasons. And if we don't get the wage inflation, well, the Fed doesn't need to rise either. 
Amazing story emerging from Amazing. Frankfurt, Germany. Amazing. Jane Foley, Rubber Bank Senior Currency Analyst, joining us from London. The interview of the day on Comcast, Disney, and on Fox, Richard Greenfield, BTIG. Richard, what is the quality of the cash flows of Fox? We understand that Comcast has a persistency of cash flow bordering on an electric utility. What are they buying if they layer on $150 billion in debt? Do they have the cash flow from the Fox assets to make this transaction work? This is a really strong free cash flow acquisition. You know, when especially you're using cash, so Comcast is actually going to lever up meaningfully in order to acquire these assets. Uh, but they absolutely do. I mean, they delever, you know, probably more than half a turn a year uh, from the amount of free cash flow that these assets generate. Remember, most of the assets you're buying, you know, you're buying most when you look at Fox. Those are assets that have uh, really strong free cash flow dynamics. You know, you're buying the, you know, a, a kind of a wide array of cable networks all over the right. world, not a lot of capex. You're buying, you know, a very profitable film studio. Uh, you know, if you look at the Sky business, what's interesting is, you know, Fox on its own doesn't get a lot of cash flow out of Sky. But when you buy the rest of Sky, all of that free cash flow, because growth has obviously slowed in the U.K. for, for right. Sky, that has become a very strong free cash flow growth engine. So, you know, this, this is about Comcast expanding its wings globally and using, in, you know, using the cash flow right. from these two assets to fund the expansion. And I think that's the really important point, Tom. You need both assets. To make this financially compelling, you need to own both Fox and Sky, not one or the other. Within this, Rich Greenfield, and you've touched on this as your colleague in crime, Craig Moffat over at Moffat Nathanson, is it's about the behavior and the tenaciousness of Brian Roberts. Explain to our global audience why the double negative Brian Roberts is saying, I can't not not do this transaction. The double negative here is so important, isn't it? He's got to get this done. Look, the, if you looked at early 2017, I think Comcast saw really strong trends in its video distribution business. So people signing up for cable TV via Comcast, that was, they were taking market share, they were growing, they were increasing the amount people were spending per month. Things looked great in early 17. You know, 12 months later, the outlook has really changed. Video subscribers are declining. ARPU is flat to declining. The, the, you know, the need to get into wireless is growing. You know, I think the outlook in the U.S. has shifted dramatically. You know, we've talked about Netflix on your show before, Tom. Like, I think everyone's been surprised. I think part of the reason why the rapid consolidation we're seeing in the sector is an outgrowth of how fast consumer behavior is changing. And I think if you're Comcast, you're looking at this going, God, the U.S. market's mature. We have expertise in building a vertically integrated company. We've created lots of shareholder value. Right. Let's try to replicate this overseas and take advantage of more nascent or earlier growth stage markets in the U.S. And right. so, you know, getting to your question on, like, why they have to do this, there's no alternative. There's nothing else that looks like Fox and Sky. There's no fallback number two or plan okay. B, per se, option. So given that... Who needs the Fox assets more, Disney or Comcast? I actually believe it's Comcast because if you look at Disney, interesting. You look at the 
Well, if you look at the Disney pitch when they made the acquisition and how they've talked to investors over the last seven months, the conversation has really been, we need this to compete with Netflix. We need to be a direct-to-consumer company. And in order for us to shift from being a middleman to actually having a direct relationship with the consumer, we need more content and we need the European and Asian distribution footprints of Fox and Sky. But that doesn't really make a lot of sense. Think of Netflix. They've never made an acquisition of a studio. They've never made an acquisition of a European or Asian distribution platform. All they've done is spend money. If Disney wants to compete with Netflix, they actually just have to spend more money. They're unwilling to do that, and I think big companies like making big acquisitions. We've got one minute left, Rich Greenfield. You've been one of the harshest critics, a constructive critic, a respectful critic of Mr. Iger and Disney. What do you need Mr. Iger to do now to benefit his shareholders? Look, I think the right decision is to invest aggressively to build and draft off of Netflix's success. My fear is, you know, he only stays past mid-2019 if he closes this transaction. He gets a $70 million one-time award if he closes this transaction. He seems set on making this acquisition. I think the fear is going to be he overspends and goes too far on a, on a strategy that doesn't make a lot of sense. So, I, you know, I don't know. If you were asking me what should he do, he should exercise restraint. I'm not sure that's possible. And so in, in that case, the winner is going to be Fox and the Murdochs, Fox shareholders and the Murdochs, because someone's going to end up overpaying. Rich Greenfield, thank you so much on short notice. Greatly appreciate it this morning. Mr. Greenfield is with BTIG. Uh, we protect the copyright of all our guests. We're not going to send you out Rich Greenfield's important notes on these transactions. It has become a substantial part of our Bloomberg Media properties, and that is important and different conversations with investor David Rubenstein, obviously his leadership position and ownership of Carlisle, well-known. David Rubenstein, and it is peer-to-peer with a uh, season two starting with Tim Cook, and you'll hear that tonight on Bloomberg Radio at 5 p.m. and again at 10 uh, p.m. These are different interviews, David. And with Mr. Cook, I know you did this at his and your uh, Duke University. How does Tim Cook do leadership? How does he delegate responsibility? Well, Tim is in a difficult, or was in a difficult position, you, you might say. He was succeeding one of the great business legends of our you know, generation, if not longer. And um, he was a low-key personality, but he uh, was very close to Steve Jobs and, and learned a lot from him. And when he took over the position, many people thought, well, how can anybody replace Steve Jobs? But as it turned out, while Steve did a wonderful job, Tim has also done a wonderful job. The market value of the company has more than doubled um, since Tim Cook has been leading it. And he tried to explain how he tries to involve people. He's more low-key than, than many CEOs. And I pointed out in the interview that I know very few CEOs of major companies who are as low-key, modest, and, and self-effacing as he is. So he has a different style than other CEOs, but clearly it works. David, uh, I'm wondering, before we get into the substance of the interview, which aired on uh, Bloomberg Television last night, was there anything that really surprised you about Tim Cook? 
Well, I've known Tim a little bit uh, before. I um, I was the chairman of the Duke University board, and I asked him to serve on the board, uh, which he agreed to do. And I'd interviewed him once before in a private setting for Duke, so I knew him a little bit. Um, but I'd say I'm most surprised by the fact that he's just so. Um, low-key relative to what you would expect. Clearly, he's making right. very difficult decisions, and he's grown the company in many ways that may not have been expected, but uh, you know, just very um, unassuming. And, you know, if you were to line him up with 10 other potential CEOs, you might say, well, he's the least um, um, ego in terms of all the typical CEOs that you, you tend to, to meet. So right. a very likable person. I can see why he's succeeded. Um, he shares the credit, which is one of the most important things a CEO should do, in my view. So I, I, you know, I think he, it comes across in the interview that he's a very likable person. David, one thing that he talked about was spending $30 billion on uh, expanding both the plants that uh, Apple right. has as well as hiring 20,000 workers. Did you get a sense of the focus of the spending in terms of what exactly the company uh, plans to expand in? The company is having a different approach to its expansion than, say, Amazon. They are, in effect, I believe, going to have a second or semi-second headquarters city, not unlike Amazon. But they didn't want to do it in quite the way Amazon's doing it. So they're doing it in a more low-key way. But I suspect in the not-too-distant future, based on what he implied, they'll announce another city that they're going to expand dramatically in and hire a fair number of people. Remember, they have the most popular consumer product in the history of consumer products, the iPhone. Over a billion of them have been sold, and people kind of seem to buy new ones every you know, one, one and a half or two years. And so I think that product will continue to be very popular for quite some time. But these have expanded past that. I mean, one of the products that he kind of helped develop was the watch. And while it may have had a slow right. start at the beginning, it seems to have taken off now. And increasingly, everybody I see seems to be wearing an Apple watch. Uh, that would be true. David, with the news flow, we must ask you about the consolidation of the media business. And I want to go to a Craig Moffat comment today in the New York Times from Moffat Nathanson. Uh, which was basically Brian Roberts wants this property really, really bad, where it becomes behavioral or motivational. As you advise CEOs about transactions large and smaller, how do you try to keep the emotion out of it and make it still analytical, sensible, and intelligent? Well, that's a difficult thing to uh, to do, but clearly uh, when you have the gap that you currently have between the, the Disney uh, price and the price that Comcast is offering, and it's an all-cash uh, transaction, I think the emotion may be swept aside. Clearly an arrangement has worked out, been worked out between Fox and Disney, which seems to be compatible to both of them, but the amount of money that uh, Comcast is putting on the table may be difficult to resist. And of course, we don't know whether there's other offers that are to come in from Disney. So I think it'll play out over the next uh, few weeks or so. But I think it'll be a very interesting transaction. And however it plays out, I think you'll see more media transactions of size getting done quickly. That's right where I wanted to go. And I don't need to know the inside baseball in Carlisle unless you'd like to make some news today. How does this open up the broader media business, large cap, visible, giant, mid cap, and even more entrepreneurial properties? How does this change the media world? Right. In the deals world, you often have uh, a land rush kind of thing uh, where all of a sudden the market says, 
The regulators are going to leave you alone a bit. There's plenty of financing there. The markets are very ebullient, and uh, there's a willingness by the media or the press generally to not look at these things as being unfavorable. And therefore, uh, people tend to do a lot of deals in these land rush kind of environments. I think that's what you're going to see now, where people feel that regulators are going to leave them alone. They'll let them do most things that they want to do. And there's a lot of cash. There's a lot of money out there. Think about this. In the Comcast transaction, they have lined up $65 billion in cash cash, not, not, not equity. Yeah. And, and clearly, there's a lot of cash out there. So I suspect you'll see a lot of large media and telecommunication deals being done. And I suspect some of them will be done by the non-media players. In other words, the large companies that we now know, like uh, um, Amazon and, and uh, Apple um, and, um, and Facebook and Google, while I don't have any inside information, I would be surprised if they sat on the sidelines and some of these crown jewels went up for sale. You know, one thing that I find interesting, uh, certainly uh, that the world of business and the world of politics is increasingly converging in a lot of people's minds. And uh, there have been a number of big business personalities that have been pegged for potential presidential candidacies, for example, uh, right. Jamie Dimon, who just shot that down. You asked Tim Cook, though, if he would consider running for president. What did he say? He didn't say that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard, which is what sometimes business people say. He gave a very thoughtful answer, which is, I'd like to be president. It would be a good job. But getting to be president, the two-year uh, yeah. uh, campaign is very difficult. But you know, I think he gave a thoughtful answer in thinking that he probably could do a good job. He knows he's a mm -hmm. good manager, but I think he didn't think he'd want to put himself through the two years of campaigning. And that's one of the things that anybody who's looking at this has to do. When you're a business leader, you're a little bit isolated. You have shareholders and you have uh, critics, but it's not like running a, a, going to Iowa, New Hampshire, and, and being exposed right. every hour mm -hmm. on the hour. So it's not easy to do. And whatever one might think of President Trump, doing that for two years is not an easy thing to do for anybody. David Rubenstein, in our final minute with you, of the many names you're going to speak to this year on Peer to Peer, which is the one you're most anticipating? Well, I, I we've already lined up a number and have already uh, taped a number of them. And the ones that I think will be interesting and the ones that, that they've already done are uh, Renee Fleming, who's a brilliant opera singer and a friend of mine, mm -hmm. um, Oscar Munez, who is the uh, CEO of uh, United Airlines. And, and he had a heart transplant just a few months after he took over the job right. and still running the company. Steve Ballmer, who ran uh, Microsoft for about 10 years, uh, right before the current CEO. Uh, Dennis Muhlenberg, who's the CEO of Boeing. Uh, uh, Khaldun al-Mubarak, who runs Mubadala, one of the largest sovereign wealth funds in the world. And then I just did one at the Giving Pledge uh, uh, session that, uh, in California, where one of the other people who signed the Giving Pledge was there, Richard Branson. And his life is quite interesting, and it's a very yeah. interesting interview. And some business ups and business downs as well. David Rubenstein, thank you so much. Tonight, much. Tim Cook and David Rubenstein, peer-to-peer. -peer, look for that uh, 5 p.m. and 10 p.m. worldwide on Bloomberg Radio, Mr. Rubenstein, of course, affiliated with the Carlisle uh, Group. Er Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.